You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Drunken Dak, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And a special welcome to our newest Commodore, Antonio, and as always, our Quartermaster, Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the past few episodes, we've discussed everything pertinent to the story of pirates and piracy in the history of the world from about 1453 to roughly 1650. And there haven't really been any pirates in that story so far. There have been privateers like Francis Drake, but mostly we've talked about exploration and colonization, about religion and war and politics. I consider these things, and at least a rough understanding of them, key to understanding the pirates of the golden age of piracy. See, pirates are so often presented as the storybook version of pirates. You know, they used to be the villain in stories, Captain Hook and Long John Silver, but these days, they've almost become heroes. You've got Captain Jack Sparrow, or in Black Sails, Captain Flint. They're not even really anti-heroes, just outright good guys. And on the one hand, I find this transition troubling. I don't like it when pirates are portrayed in a heroic light, noble and valorous and even friendly. I... Well, I really liked that first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but the trend, which I call the Disneyfication of pirates, is something I don't care for. I'm talking about the wooden sword set, the friendly pirates who, you know, never kill anybody. I saw something online once, a picture from some children's book, and it had one of those chubby, smiling cartoon pirates, and, you know, he might be missing a tooth, and he has a parrot and a wooden sword, but the caption underneath that picture said, Remember, kids, a good pirate never takes other people's things without asking. I mean, maybe that's a good message for kids, but is a pirate really the mascot you want to use for a message like that? Obviously not, but pirates have become children's book fairy stories. I mean, Disney turned pirates from villains into, what, tour guides? They stripped their villainous pirates of all the larceny and rape and torture and murder that were realities in their world. And I understand it. There's a good reason behind it. You can't sell a movie in which Captain Hook kidnaps Wendy with 
evil intent, but the real-world pirates that kidnapped real-world maidens weren't looking for a mother figure. You couldn't have Smee capture Tiger Lily and cut pieces off of her until she told him the location of the Lost Boys' hideout. They couldn't have the pirates under Captain Hook march ashore and attack a bunch of children. A fun secret ambush, maybe, but you couldn't have them literally burn the Lost Boys alive, and in the end, Hook couldn't disembowel Peter Pan. You know, Mr. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, well, he wouldn't want to write that for a storybook intended for orphans, and Disney didn't want to release that movie. I mean, I would watch that movie with the pirates being violent villains, but something tells me Disney's market share would take a hit. So they took these real-world villains, real pirates, and turned them into bumbling, goofy, incompetent antagonists. Now, they almost took a right step in the Pirates of the Caribbean. They made the Royal Navy the bad guys in that, and that's a step I approve of. But Jack Sparrow became the hero in that situation, and make no mistake, pirates were definitely bad guys. Even the cool pirates, the ones I like, who abhorred slavery and banned rape and had codes of honor on their ships, they were still criminals. They still killed people and stole goods. What's missing from a character like Jack Sparrow, and definitely missing from a Captain Hook, what's even missing from the properly menacing fictional pirates of old is the question of why. Think about the great villains in literature and movies throughout the ages. The most terrifying among them are the, well, you've got the unstoppable. You've got the unexplained villains like Michael Myers or the Joker or the Terminator. But the best villains, in my opinion, are the villains to which we can relate. We can understand why they do the things they do, why they're villains in the first place. Villains like Magneto or Mr. Freeze or that one scarred chimp in Planet of the Apes. And I approve of the current, maybe growing trend in media in which pirates are presented somewhat sympathetically, almost honestly. In many ways, the world in which we live today has a distinctly anti-establishment bent. People want to shake things up all around the world, and pirates are a good mascot for that. They're still mythological, larger than life, but sometimes in modern pirate lore they're presented within their historical context, and from that we get to see why they did what they did, what their goals were, and what their motivations were, beyond the traditional mustache-twirling villainy. But they're all too often heroes in those narratives, fighting a noble fight. At best, that's a half-truth. It ignores the violence and brutality, the greed that were realities in the real stories of pirates' lives. Today, we're going to look at the first real pirates of the Caribbean, the earliest sea rovers to make their way to the New World. We're going to look at why they were there. We're going to look at their goals and motivations, and we're going to look at the reality of what they did, including the brutality and the violence and the greed. This is episode 102, The Story So Far, Part 3. Last time, I asked you to imagine yourself in the shoes of someone that grew up during the Thirty Years' War. It would work equally well to imagine yourself in the English Civil War, or the latter years of the Eighty Years' War between Spain and the Netherlands. 
The war, capital T, capital W, was really a series of different conflicts. They were all tied to one another, but essentially they were separate. You know, there were battles between the Hungarians and the Transylvanians and the Ottomans that had very little to do with the battles between Sweden or Denmark or the battles between Spain and France. There were alliances that tied these armies to one another, and in a way, these were different fronts of the same war with different armies and different nations. So it looks kind of like World War I, as I mentioned last time. But these armies in the 1600s didn't have telegraphs, they didn't have railroads, they had no way to foster communication. So they were, in many ways, separate conflicts. But you could be a Transylvanian or a German or a Dane, and the war might not look that different from any other front, aside from the geography. But then, last time, I asked you to narrow down that field, to imagine yourself not just as some random continental peasant, but the child of a fisherman. And allow me to add a few more guidelines to that. This hypothetical fisherman's child will be a male. We will be examining the female experience that would run parallel to this, but not today. This hypothetical child was young, maybe only 13 or so, and he would be either English, French, or Dutch. If we're talking about pirates, and we are, those three nations gave us more than any others, at least during this era. So what would life have been like growing up during the war? In some ways, his life would have been easier than those living deeper inland. Coastal settlements were always less susceptible to famine and starvation than communities that relied on crops. And on the coast, if you lived in a reasonable port city at least, things might have been a bit more secure. Port cities were valuable resources, and they would have been guarded with all of the forces available to do so, both land and sea forces. In this war especially, when the importance of sea power was becoming extremely apparent, these seaports became bases of operation. But just because there is a source of food and a lack of foreign invaders, that does not mean that there is a lack of enemies or of threats to your life. Probably most pressing to this young fisherman would have been the press gangs. And yes, I am quite proud of that. We've talked about the press gangs before. And last time I asked you to imagine walking home when a gang of big, tough men grabs you off the street and bundles you aboard a ship in the harbor. I asked you to picture and try to put yourself in the place of waking up and the first thing you notice is the sun on your face and then the sound of the waves and then a splitting headache and then the realization that you are miles out at sea. So let's pick up there, in the voyage of a young man, either English or French or Dutch, coming to grips with his new life. That first day at sea, in the life of an impressed sailor, well, I have some plans to talk about impressment at length in the future, the details behind it, and it's a really complex topic. The British were the worst perpetrators of impressment. They had legalized it under Elizabeth and then bolstered the process of it during the Anglo-Spanish War, but everyone in Europe would do it at times. The biggest factor in impressment is what was called the Vagrancy Act, 
and that was an act that allowed any male of ill repute to be forcefully conscripted into the navy. There were rules in place that were intended to protect boys under a certain age that were involved in some form of training, but if you did not have any type of gainful employment, you were certainly on the chopping block, and really, every boy and young man in a coastal city in England, and at times on the coasts of France and Spain and the Netherlands, well, they all lived in fear. You might be a family man, you might have a wife and children and a trade, but that became very hard to prove when you woke up on a ship very far from home. You might be that family man, but if you happened to pass out drunk in a tavern, or if you passed out in the streets, those press gangs could claim you were a vagrant, even though it was often those same gangs that bought you all the drinks. Often, though, they didn't even bother with buying you the drinks because a club was a lot cheaper and faster than a bunch of ale. So when you found yourself on board, that 13-year-old boy, you were alongside a bunch of other vagrants who were, all of you, under the watchful eyes of a group of large, violent-looking men. Then a well-dressed, snooty fop of an officer explains the situation to you. You are vagrants. Scum, the dregs of society. Your freedom is forfeit due to your low birth and poor life decisions. He is an officer and a minor noble, ordained by God Almighty to tell you what to do as your better. You have been conscripted into His Majesty's Navy, but you do have an option. You can sign a contract of service that shall last indefinitely as long as this ship is under commission for the war. You shall be bound to her decks and required to do everything that is asked of you without question on pain of being whipped into a bloody mess. Your wages will be virtually non-existent, but you will be fighting for king and country until you are either dead or no longer needed, at which point you will be unceremoniously thrown off the ship. Or you can always choose option two, the endless expanse of open ocean without a boat. There isn't much choice here, and I'm fairly certain nobody chose option two. So you, as that thirteen-year-old boy, would spend, say, two years sailing, working endless hours, going hungry, baking in the sun, enduring the lash, and occasionally going into battle to watch men die in bloody piles of screaming humanity at your feet. After those two years, you'd be a lot tougher and fifteen years old, but you still wouldn't have seen home or family in those two years. Your comrades on board, well, there are the officers, well-fed in their crisp uniforms and well-rested in their private cabins, but they aren't really your comrades. Your actual comrades would be as hungry and as weary as you are. They would be huddled together at night or during the day, depending on their shift, in communal sleeping quarters, and they would be eating the same rotting meat and hard tack. Most of them are English and poor, but there are a few Spaniards on board who were captured after a battle. There's maybe an Italian and a Frenchman and a small cadre of Moroccans and former Barbary pirates. Sometimes you might see that lot whispering in dark corners. They might grow quiet when they see that you've noticed them, and sometimes you might notice that the Spaniards and the Italian are over there with them. 
Sometimes a few of the hardest and toughest and meanest Englishmen aboard are there too. You know that they're up to no good, but you try to stay out of it because, well, you don't want to get wrapped up in whatever trouble they're planning. But what do you do when you wake up one night with a hand over your mouth, with two men holding you down and a blade against your throat? What do you do when they tell you in, let's assume a blend of Spanish and Moroccan accents, that they are about to take the ship by force? They're planning to kill all of the officers and sail away as free men. And once again, you have a choice. You can help them, or you can die right here and now. Most people would answer the same way. They would nod, and then they would be handed a sword. Now you could follow these conspirators around and wave your sword in the air and yell really loudly, or you could do what needs doing. But do you? Do you kill in this situation? Do you take human life? Now most of us don't know what killing somebody feels like. Soldiers might have that experience. And remember that this young man on board this warship was himself a soldier in a war, and he'd almost certainly killed people before. But there's a difference between fighting a war and murder. Killing these officers, these weren't... Well, they weren't declared enemies. They may have felt very much like enemies, but these were men from his own homeland, from his country. However, he could still feel the scars from his last lashing. They were itching beneath the rough spun shirt covering his empty belly. And once the men who did that to him were dead, he could take the ship and see home again. So if you were in his shoes, would you kill? I bet you do. I bet you use that sword to cut the throat of one of the officers that did this to you. I bet you stare at the blood. And I bet you're in a bit of shock at the sight. Even if you've killed before, this feels different. But do you drop the sword? Do you run and hide? Or do you take that sword into another plush and comfortable officer's cabin? But once the ship is taken and you are once again free men, what do you do when you learn that, no, you can't go home? You will never be able to go home again. You just killed Royal Navy officers. Even if you didn't, you took part in the mutiny, and that mutiny killed the captain. You are an outlaw now. Your only option is to sail this ship as far from home as possible. Remember, you're only fifteen. In many ways, you would be more experienced than 15-year-olds in our world would be, but that experience also comes with what we would probably understand today as PTSD. I bet that you break down, learning that after all of that murder, all of the torment of those two years at sea, you're never going to be able to see home. How do you cope with the fact that you realize you are now a hardened criminal? You are an enemy of the whole human race. I bet you do so by sobbing quietly where no one can see you. To get as far away from home as possible, to escape the justice that would certainly be coming your way, I don't like the use of the word justice there. Was it just to be kidnapped and taken aboard a ship against your will? Was it justice for the people who perpetrated that crime to die? I don't know the answers to that thing. However, 
you would be waiting for a noose in your home country. So you would cross the Atlantic to the New World. Now that crossing was rarely pleasant. They were usually terrifying, occasionally painful, and on this particular voyage you wouldn't have had enough supplies for the crossing. They wouldn't have been prepared for it. But after a few weeks at sea, going hungry and enduring storms, you and your comrades would arrive at a sandy spit of land surrounded by reefs in the midst of open ocean. It would be warm here, much warmer than your homeland, and the waters would be clear and blue. There were palm trees. In some ways, the warmth, the blue waters, the palm trees, it would remind you of Morocco, but this is something more. But more importantly than any of that, you can see schools of fish, colorful, darting, massive schools of fish. You can see turtles everywhere, and you can hear the calls of at least a dozen different birds coming from the island. And all of them, the fish, the turtles, the birds, they're edible. You and your comrades might spend a few days here, maybe a couple of weeks here. It would be a good place to gather food and water. And you would be able to relax on the beach and enjoy all of that food and water and the fine weather. These were pleasures that you had been denied for at least two years, if not your entire life. But eventually it's time to take that ship from this small spit of land and find some new lodgings. The voyage of what is essentially exploration would take time. You would probably have to avoid a few Spanish patrols and endure a storm or two, but there would be plenty of islands you might come across to choose from and plenty of food along the way. Moments of fear, but mostly pretty pleasant, I assume. Then you see it. A landmass, not just some island, but land as far as the eye can see. You follow the coast, maybe for miles, until you find a suitable anchorage. You and your friends spend a few days there exploring and hunting and eating. But the lookouts keep their eyes open and they see a Spanish ship on the horizon. You and your friends have to run to get to the shore to scurry on board the ship and to get her underway in only a few minutes. Now you get away, but you've been spotted. The Spanish ship is trailing you. For a day and a night they follow you, until you see a large, rounded island off the coast. Looks kind of like a turtle when you think about it, and heavily wooded. You make right for it. Now the Spanish ship follows you, but you have the lead, enough time to circle the island and get out of sight to search for and eventually amazingly find a small, narrow cove, but big enough for your ship. You and your comrades scour the rigging, you furl the sails, and then you climb down to man the guns. They're all loaded, primed, ready to fire. All the big guns are aimed at the harbor mouth, and every last one of you has a loaded harquebus or a sharp blade, as well as the feeling of impending doom. So how would you feel there, hunkered down on deck in a sweltering cove in the middle of paradise, how would you feel waiting for a ship full of Spanish Coast Guard to sail in and murder you? After the mutiny, after killing all of those officers, after the thrill and the trauma, I wonder if any of that would be coming back to haunt you. Maybe, maybe, but personally I think the fear would overwrite any of that. 
If it were me, I imagine I would be busy concentrating on the issue of dying halfway around the globe from home in a hail of cannonballs and musket shot. But that Spanish Coast Guard ship would probably pass you by, leaving you unnoticed to sail on toward the horizon. I mean, there's a good chance that they would actually just legitimately miss your ship in that hidden cove, but even if they knew where you were, they would know that you had chosen a spot where you could fire on them as soon as they sailed into view. If you were on that Spanish ship, wouldn't you rather not attack a pirate ship full of wild barbarians hiding in a cove waiting to attack you? Personally, if I were the Spanish, I would leave them to hide out on that turtle-shaped little island. They called it Tortuga, by the way. I'd let them hang around and hunt for wild boar. It's not like they were hurting anybody. And it would be a lot easier to come back with a lot more troops later on. Now, all of that is hypothetical. The impressment, the mutiny, the crossing, the hiding out from the Spanish... None of it is based on an actual account or a journal. I made it all up. I did it to put you in the mindset of someone like that because something like that happened to a lot of people. We don't know a whole lot about those early exiles. It's not like there were a lot of literate men among the sailors that fled Europe in the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, and those few that were literate didn't bring pens and paper with them but we did hear their stories later on from more learned men. However, lots and lots of Europeans did start trickling in to the West Indies by the latter years of the Thirty Years' War, and by about 1650, just a couple years after the war ended, there was a sizable population of exiles living on or around the island called Santo Domingo. They lived mostly in the northwest corner of the island, or on the nearby island of Tortuga. In some real ways, this sizable population were also casualties of that war. Nearly all of them were Protestants of one form or another, usually of either radical or persecuted sects, but not always. These exiles lived a rugged lifestyle without shelter or commerce or jobs or bosses or any of the trappings of modern life. They spent their days hunting and trapping wild boar or turtle or whatever was available, and they spent their nights drinking stolen Spanish wine or rum and sleeping around a campfire under the stars in the middle of paradise. Sounds just awful. From what we can glean, they appeared to have had no organized religion. There were a number of different faiths, or at least doctrines in place there, and they didn't exactly have churches, so they didn't hold regular services, but there are tales of a few buccaneer preachers who subsisted on gifts of furs and rum and boar. Now these guys, these buccaneer preachers, they were often the only literate men in the area, and maybe they had a Bible with them, but usually they just told Bible stories around the campfire as they traveled between different groups. Usually, they would tell the stories about, and this is, I'm just guessing here, but I would assume they were telling stories about prostitutes and violence and the wrath of God, you know, the good stuff. I love these preachers. But I sort of buried the lead there when I mentioned the buccaneer preachers. All of these exiles were called buccaneers. Most of the proper buccaneers were French, and, 
In fact, their name comes from the Bukan, which is the Gallicized version of the native Caribbean name for the racks on which they smoked meats and treated furs. Their society, if it could even be called a society, was broken down into three groups. There were the hunters, who spent their days roving around and, you know, hunting. Then there were those that manned the Bukans, usually in a nomadic style as well, but less nomadic than the hunters. Oftentimes, those who manned the Bukans lived near the local Caribbean Taino people, and they were also on the move more often than not. The reason everyone was roving about and living a nomadic life was because of the Spanish. Santo Domingo was a Spanish settlement. It was actually the first landmass that Columbus found that wasn't a tiny island. The Spanish settlements, though, were almost all in the southeast of the island, while the Buccaneers and the Taino people were all up near Tortuga. And I should note that the hunters and those who manned the Bucans were not separate groups. They could change from time to time, it's just that somebody needed to stay behind and work the Bucans, so a certain number of the Buccaneers always had to be doing so. But Spanish ships did sail up this way to rout out the buccaneers and the Indians from time to time. Occasionally, they were successful. They would chase them off. In those occasions, the buccaneers and the Taino would just go either deeper into Santo Domingo or over to Tortuga. But usually, the Spanish just sailed around without finding anything. But occasionally, they ran into trouble. That trouble came from the third group within the Buccaneers, the group from which the word Buccaneer derives its modern meaning. A few rambunctious Buccaneers spent their time... Well, really they were hunters, but whenever they spotted a Spanish ship anchored off the coast late at night, they would sneak down to shore. See, they did hunt boar, but they hunted other, larger and more dangerous prey as well. Maybe... They had canoes hidden away, or maybe they took the time to build a few quick rafts. But by hook or by crook, they made their way out to those ships and climbed aboard. Maybe they found the ship asleep and quiet, or maybe they had to incapacitate a watchman or kill him. And then they would take a few casks of wine or rum. They would take gunpowder, of course, and guns and shot and a little bit of food, the good stuff, not the dried meats and hardtack they could make that themselves. They would also naturally take any silver or gold they might find sitting around. Of course, they wouldn't be able to spend the silver or gold, but it was nice to have. And then they would lower one of the ship's boats, load it up, and make their way to shore. Now suppose that this Spanish vessel had a pinnace in tow, even, perhaps, with a few sailors on board. I would imagine that the buccaneers would take that instead, and this was definitely piracy. However, compared to what we think of when we think of the golden age of piracy, this is on a much smaller scale, just ransacking a few supplies and taking a boat or two to aid in getting from Tortuga to the Big Island. Of course, even in these small-scale raids, a few Spaniards would have to die now and again. So, in due course, more and more Coast Guard ships sailed up from the south. And with more and more Coast Guard ships arriving, more and more ships got raided, 
and more Spaniards got killed. And with this escalation, the buccaneers gained a reputation as pirates. You know, most of the buccaneers were French trappers, not unlike those that operated in North America, even in the United States after the Louisiana Purchase, but they had virtually no contact with the outside world, except for these acts of piracy, and that reputation grew. And it was earned, this reputation as pirates, as more and more Spanish soldiers started coming up from the south, more and more hunters stopped hunting boar and started hunting the Spanish. With fewer hunts coming in, more of the buccaneers who would have stayed behind were able to go out hunting the Spanish. And as word of these piracies spread, the few groups of French Huguenot fur trapper religious exiles living on Tortuga attracted comrades. There were English privateers who had lost their licenses. There were Dutch Z-rovers who were already operating here and there in the West Indies. And even more than a few Barbary pirates who were fleeing the English invasion of Algeria. Because of this, and maybe rightfully so, the English and the Dutch are often lumped in with the French in the umbrella of buccaneers. However, English and Dutch privateers and pirates were already in the West Indies, before the French got there. However, they were less successful than the French. The first major attempt to colonize the West Indies from any of those three powers, basically anyone other than Spain or Portugal, was an English endeavor. But it wasn't an official, royally sanctioned, government-endorsed colonization effort. It was a private affair, undertaken by a group called the Providence Island Company. Now, the Providence Island Company were a chartered corporation, much like the Dutch East India Company, or the British East India Company, or the French West India Company, or the Dutch West India Company. You know, you get the idea here. These chartered corporations were... Well, we're going to be going into this in some depth very soon, but basically they were private monopolies granted exclusive rights by the crown to trade and colonize. They were owned and financed, though, by rich investors and a few members of the nobility. There were a ton of these chartered corporations, and most of them weren't as big as the Dutch East India Company. Most of them were chartered with a certain task or a certain act of colonization or trade in one particular good or location. The Providence Island Company was one of these. They were created specifically to settle the island of Providencia, off the coast of modern Nicaragua. But the biggest difference between the Providence Island Company and the other trading corporations was that the Providence Islanders were deeply Puritan. How did I describe the Puritans last time? Austere? Severe? Really fond of stiff black clothes? And the Bible? And they really didn't like fun or alcohol or Christmas? I think I said the first time I talked about the Providence Island Company, years ago at this point, that they were the worst kind of pirates, the boring kind. No drinking, no gambling, no dancing, no music, just prayers on board. But they were pirates. They did steal from the Spanish, they did raid a Spanish settlement and attempt to set up a colony on Providence Island. But the Providence Island settlement was a horrible failure. The settlers there starved. Many of them died of yellow fever right at the outset, and then they endured hurricanes. 
But then the Spanish arrived to chase them off. Only a few settlers survived, and those that did escaped to the west, to the coast of Nicaragua. That coast is called the Mosquito Coast, after the Mosquito people that live there. Now, the Mosquito people were not a Native American tribe, dating back into antiquity. They were more like a coalition of the remnants of peoples that had been conquered by the Spanish. Many of them were Mayan, people who had been pushed from their ancestral homes, but there were also Aztecs, Incas, and exiles from smaller groups. All of them, though, had one thing in common. They hated the Spanish, and they congregated into that coast, which was a dense jungle. It was difficult to traverse, and it was hidden away far from any other Spanish settlement. And things are a bit different today on the Mosquito Coast. The modern Mosquito people are a distinct ethnic and cultural group, but in 1650, they were kind of new. One thing that defines the modern Mosquito is that they have a lot of West African ancestry. That's because these Mosquito people would take in escaped slaves from time to time. Now, in 1650, they weren't doing a lot of that, but that would really ramp up, largely thanks to a bunch of pirates in a few years' time. At this point, the Mosquito people were closely allied to a number of Dutch Z-rovers that had been operating in the West Indian Theater of the Thirty Years' War. Remember last time when I said that the Thirty Years' War was very much like World War I because of the warfare taking place in the colonies? Well, this Dutch war on the Spanish colonies in the New World was one of the examples of that. Some of these privateers bordered on piracy, much like a man named Abraham Blaufeld. And Blaufeld actually traded with the Providence Island Puritans when they finally settled down there. He also was responsible for bringing many of the survivors of that colony to the Mosquito Coast. Now, at this point, the Thirty Years' War is still going on, although the English weren't fighting it. But the English and the Dutch were still close allies, so they built something of a community there on the Mosquito Coast, alongside, or at least next door to, their Mosquito allies. That settlement was built around a small, well-hidden, perfect little cove. Personally, I like to imagine a huge wooden fortress with layer upon layer of platforms filled with guns. I imagine them connected by ladders as well as ropes on which the pirates would swing around holding swords in their teeth and looking handsome and dashing the whole time. Of course, it wasn't anything like that. This was just a tiny little cove that these pirates chose because of the access to fresh water and the ability to hide from Spanish ships but I really like the image of a pirate city, kind of like the Goonies or Hook or, you know, Swiss Family Robinson, just drunk and violent. But that cove is called today Abraham's Key, after Abraham Blaufeld. The river from which they got their fresh water and the land surrounding Abraham's Key is called Bluefields, which is the anglicized version of Blaufeld. This group of Dutch and Native American, English and African peoples mingled and mixed and all helped each other out. What we see growing here is the dawn of what would become pirate culture, or even pulling back from that, Caribbean culture. That blend of ethnicities and 
traditions, and languages all turned into something new there on the Mosquito Coast. But once the French buccaneers on Tortuga found out about the place, or vice versa, ships from both areas, Tortuga and Abraham's Key, began to trade and travel between one another and mingle. We see the beginnings of that multinational pirate culture manifest itself in a way that we can measure, and that is their language, or really their dialect. They incorporated... Well, let's take a second here and look at the lingua franca for a minute. I talked about that back when we were talking about the Barbary pirates. The lingua franca was a dialect that evolved in the Crusader states, mainly in Jerusalem during the Crusades. Despite its name, French actually had very little to do with the lingua franca. The locals, mostly Arab or Turkish people, called all of the Crusaders Franks, and thus their language became known as the lingua franca. Now that was a pidgin language. It was a blend of different European languages alongside Turkish and Hebrew and Berber and Arabic. The Barbary pirates would speak something similar to the crusader version of the lingua franca, and we're going to see something like that develop in the Caribbean, especially among these early buccaneers. The primary elements of that buccaneer language would be English, French, and Dutch, and there would be more or less of each of those depending on the locale in which it was spoken. But it will begin to incorporate tons of other languages. Spanish might be the most important language to that buccaneer dialect. They were in the New World, and the Spanish had named so much of the New World that it seems natural but we'll also see elements of Carib and Taino and West African dialects. I watched a documentary about Bob Marley, and there was this old, white, well-dressed intelligence agent who worked against Bob Marley. I think he was a CIA agent, or maybe he was British intelligence, you know, maybe he was both, but he was a Jamaican native. He looked like he should sound like M, James Bond's boss, you know, the guy in the plush office that takes away his Walther PPK in the first movie. But when he talked, this old white British intelligence agent, he sounded like a reggae singer. And, you know, that makes sense. Most reggae singers are Jamaican, and so was he. But it seemed out of place. But we see pidgin languages all over the Caribbean today. We see languages that... Usually they're based on whatever colonial language the one-time colonizers once spoke. But that colonial language evolved into something, usually because it was spoken by so many slaves and native Caribbean peoples, they evolved into something that incorporates dialects from all over the world. Even a little bit later on in our story, when we're dealing with English colonists on Jamaica, even they wouldn't have sounded like James Bond. First of all, mostly because they were from the southwest of England, which is, you know, why they sounded like pirates in the first place. And their English, aside from the accent, actually sounded a lot more like the English of Shakespeare than, you know, the BBC. And today, Shakespeare might sound like high, fancy language, but at the time, it was written in a low English London dialect, the language of the people for whom Shakespeare wrote. But then add in a little bit of Spanish and French, and you might have something like, to estoy, 
or not to a tray? That is el questione, am I right? And I mean, add in a little bit of Taino and some African dialects, and you have yourself a proper pirate pigeon language. The point of all that is that this group of people came from all over the world, but they started to blend into a singular New World pirate culture. That's what they were building there on the Mosquito Coast. And they did so because of what was kind of a shared war against the Spanish. The Mosquito Freedom Fighters had been fighting theirs for some time, but the others were currently at war with them. And once the Tortuga Buccaneers showed up, they became helpful allies as well. Everybody was gathering together, creating this culture because they hated Spain. But none of them were all that powerful, or all that numerous. The Mosquito people were mostly exiles from defeated remnants of former empires. The Dutch privateers were only a few small groups, and once the war ended, many of them went home. The English people that were there were a few failed colonists, and they were Puritans. There was one group of French buccaneers, a small but growing fleet, that were out there attacking the Spanish. They were led by a pirate named Francois Lolonais but he was a violent and unpredictable ally at best, not someone the Mosquito people wanted to associate with. But then, one day in the early 1660s, someone with the soldiers and the ships and the will to do real damage to Spain showed up and introduced himself. His name was Henry Morgan, and he needed help finding his way inland where he planned to strike a real blow to Spain. Next time, Francois Lolonais and Henry Morgan. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has given us a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. And thanks to all of our patrons. We've got a number of new patrons recently, so a special thanks to all of you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.